0: Section 16 of the History Teachers Magazine, Volume 1, Number 3, November 1909. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England the history teachers magazine volume one number three november nineteen hundred and nine section sixteen english history in the secondary school c b newton editor three advance and retrogression the hundred years war progress is the keynote of the period we have now reached the rise of the house of commons extending over the last of the thirteenth and first of the fourteenth centuries the great laws of edward i's reign the growth of commerce the national spirit induced by the national triumphs at crecy and poitiers are some of the larger landmarks in the forward march of the english nation during the hundred years following henry the third even the troubled years which followed the black death the upheavals in society and religion in the latter fourteenth century were the throes of progress then but for the brief glories of henry V comes a time of halting the miserable end of the long and useless conflict with france the turbulence and lawlessness of the baronage the weakness of the king all combined to bring about a period of retrogression when the pulse of the nation beats low and the tides of progress were stayed soon the purging bloodshed of the wars of the roses and the strong hand of the tudors started once more the healthy growth which had been checked Some such general survey, presented perhaps on the blackboard by a line of the kind used to indicate seismic disturbances, or given in some brief direct notes taken down verbatim, will serve as a clearer of the atmosphere, an indicator of the trend of things during this difficult period. A problem in quantities. I say difficult... "'because I find myself, when I reach the great reign of His Majesty Edward I, "'twixt a veritable Scylla and Charybdis, past whom I steer with annual apprehension. "'I know I must take a middle course, but I have not yet satisfied myself "'that I have found the best channel for the precious cargo that I carry. "'Scylla is the danger of too little detail, the devouring monster of over-definiteness.' charybdis is the equal danger of too much detail the menace of the minutiae which defeat their own purpose and confound in the whirlpool of mental confusion let me explain more concretely the origin and development of the house of commons is a highly important subject it behooves me to impress its history as lucidly and forcibly as may be upon my class but it is a subject beset with obscurities and difficult to make clear to an immature mind I may ignore all the obscurities and the conflicting details and may simply emphasize the principal landmarks the first inclusion of the Commons in Simon de Montfort's Parliament of 1265 the cementing of Simon's innovation in the model Parliament of 1295 and the separation of the upper and lower houses early in Edward the third's reign this is the method of some of the older textbooks It is clear-cut, simple, definite. But is it true? Certainly not unqualifiedly, no. My love of truth warns me that I must not make it so definite, so conveniently cut and dried, so absolute, if I am to convey the historical facts. On the other hand, suppose I resolve to go into more strictly accurate detail. Shall I call forth the notebooks and painstakingly explain that representatives of the shires were first summoned by King John in 1213, that two knights from each shire were called to Parliament in 1254, that in 1261 three knights were summoned, in 1264 four, in 1265 two knights and two burgesses, in 1275 two knights but that the practice of summoning knights of the shire and citizens of the towns did not become in any sense continuous till 1295? If I do this, I must go further and try to give some of the reasons for this desultory and varying practice. And before I am done, I have made a fine muddle in my pupils' heads. I have shipwrecked both interest and comprehension, and I am not much nearer conveying truth than I would have been by the former method so too i must beware of giving or allowing the impression that parliament was in any sense a legislative body at this period and at the same time i must have a care lest in trying to explain its functions not always too clear to the more advanced scholar i explain too much and mislead where i would enlighten the same difficulty presents itself in the effort to give the gist of the great laws of edward the and of edward the third some of these laws are very hard to express simply some of them were enacted over and over again yet the principles for which they stood and their subsequent effects can hardly be overlooked again as in the case of the house of commons i must be definite and simple and yet not too definite or too simple of course this is nothing more than the problem of selection which confronts historians and teachers at many points but rather more persistently at some points than others there is no patent solution for the problem but I believe it helps immensely to be thoroughly alive to it and to keep two principles steadily in mind when we find the difficulty particularly acute one that strong meat is not for babes and that the finer points of a discussion such as that which concerns the growth of the lower branch of Parliament should be reserved for university work two that though truth may be better subserved by bringing out essentials clearly even with over-emphasis yet it is possible to suggest qualifications which will leave loopholes for further modification for instance the parliaments of twelve sixty five and twelve ninety five may be emphasized as the first and second steps in the beginning of the house of commons yet it may be explained that as early as john's reign knights of the shire were occasionally summoned to parliament I have dwelt at some length on this subject because, self-evident as it may seem, it is full of pitfalls which only the utmost vigilance will avoid. A plea for life and colour. Fortunately there is plenty of stirring action to offset the tedium to boys and girls of laws and parliaments. Bannockburn, Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt, what an array of names to conjure with! Let us not be parsimonious, fellow-teachers, when we reach these vantage grounds of glory. Let us not be ultra-orthodox in our scientific view of history. In the reaction, the very proper reaction, from the view of history which made it a mere record of wars and battles, there is danger of making it a valley of dry bones. After all, it is the record of life and the events which have stirred the imagination and aroused the patriotism of millions are not to be too lightly set aside. Let the young imagination drink delight of battle with its peers. Let it see what was really noble as well as what was base in chivalry. Surely it is worthwhile that it should catch the life and colour of those middle ages, so different, yet after all so human has given us this in a form now easily accessible or failing a complete edition of his chronicles cheney's readings furnish a taste pages two hundred and thirty three to two hundred and forty nine but hardly enough for only cressy is here described green as usual is vivid in his battle accounts Burn pages two hundred and thirteen and two hundred and fourteen cressy calais and poitiers pages two hundred and twenty five to two hundred and thirty and ashen pages two hundred and sixty seven to two hundred and sixty eight henry the Fifth's speech in shakespeare's play of henry the fifth is too splendid in its rhetoric to be overlooked sometimes a laggard in the class loves to declaim and may be stirred to some interest by such a speech here is the chance to make him useful and then the story of joan of arc with its unspeakable beauty and pathos comes as a noble climax a spiritual contrast to the series of events, the glamour of which is at best of the earth earthy, in comparison with the life and death of the maid. Gardiner's student's history contains a very concise account of her life, pages 310 to 312. The extracts from contemporary writings, pages 289 to 296 of Cheney's readings, are very interesting and illuminating. Green's account, pages 274 to 279, is vivid, especially the story of her trial and death, page 279. Reference to the great performance given in the Harvard Stadium last June by Maud Adams would add reality and interest to the study of Joan of Arc. An interesting account of this with pictures may be found in current literature for August 1909, pages 196 to 199. For a very interesting, detailed account of the beginnings of the House of Commons, see the extended quotation from Stubbs's Select Charters in Beard's Introduction, pages 124 to 157. In discussing the Black Death and its effects, it is worthwhile to point out the revolution wrought by modern medicine and sanitation to which is due the absence of such plagues from modern Europe. The bubonic plague, which still devastates India, is much like the Black Death, and the failure of the English to exterminate it in India is due to the superstitious dread and suspicion with which the natives regard all efforts towards inoculation, segregation and disinfection. In the readings, pages 255 to 257, is a contemporary account of the plague, which not only paints it realistically, but shows its effects on labour. End of section 16